From the nation's capital, this is D.C. Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Ladies and gentlemen, a treat today, Jeffrey Porter. I'm titling this program a story about reentry from prison to focusing on an individual who is under our supervision, under the supervision of the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. We also have Trina Stewart. She is an intergovernmental and community affairs specialist with my agency, Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. Trina was the one who recommended Jeffrey uh, in terms of doing today's podcast. So to Jeffrey and Trina, welcome to D.C. Public Safety. Good afternoon. Thank you. Jeffrey, I'm going to start with you. Um, You've been involved in the criminal justice system for quite some time, correct? Yes. Tell me about it. So my first offense was at the age of 12 where I stole a car, and uh, I was subsequently incarcerated in a a boy's home for about five years. I was released when I was 17. Uh, I didn't have any more contact with the system until I was about 22 or 23. I moved to Washington, D.C., developed a substance abuse issue, and... uh, was arrested and convicted for a felony of um, breaking and entering uh, probably about the age of 25. Mm -hmm. And uh, from 25 up until present, I had a couple of misdemeanors uh, up until January of 2014 where I committed assault with a deadly weapon, a knife. You know, that is a long history of involvement in the criminal justice system, and yet here you are before microphones, and you're about to tell people within the criminal justice system about their system uh, from the perspective of somebody who has been through the system. Trina, I'm interested. You've, you're a criminal justice veteran. You, you've been around for, what, 16 years involved in the criminal justice system? About that, sir. Okay. Yeah. You've, got, you've got one heck of a background. You know people involved in the criminal justice system. What did you see in Jeffrey that you found interesting enough that you wanted to bring Jeffrey to my attention and do a podcast? In meeting uh, Mr. Porter uh, via a community service event, I in- I usually inquire from our clients, what led you here? How did you get uh, court-ordered uh, to do community service? And from that, Mr. Porter uh, and I developed a uh, rapport with one another where he was very candid mm-hmm. uh, and honest with me uh, and with regards to what we had in terms of our uh, pre-sentence investigation report and our post-sentence investigation report. It showed that the same information that Mr. Porter provided me was indeed what we had in our system. And he, he was open and honest. And it, it I really um, felt he he made an impression on me that he genuinely wanted to go into the right direction. And thus far, all avenues have led that way. Okay, so now the question becomes, what did either one of us see in terms of uh, Jeffrey Porter? Because uh, I felt the same way. Um, what is it that Jeff... What is, what is it about Jeffrey that stands out from so many other people under supervision? Um... One, his um, attire, like, for instance, in the event that I had, it was a uh, community service event, our Community Justice Advisory Network event, and uh, Mr. Porter was one of our clients that was scheduled to work the event. Uh, He was... He didn't wait to say, okay, this needs to be done. He knew what the uh, layout was. He said, hey, I can do this. And immediately um, after setting up the event, he... uh, began to say, hey, well, look, I can do registration. And from that, I mean, he had the persona. He came with a shirt and a tie. 
I mean, the rest is he almost He carries history. himself beautifully. All right, Jeffrey, now you're in the spot. What is it that separates you from everybody else? I've interviewed, oh, my heavens, over 25 years, hundreds of people who've been caught up in the criminal justice system. And we're always looking for that unique standout, saying to ourselves, how did he get involved in all of this? What's different about you? You know that you're different from so many other people caught up in supervision. What's different about you? Uh, I think it's because I had a frame of reference. And by that, I mean, uh, I came up in a two-parent household. I understood right from wrong. Uh, and I had some morals and values instilled in me as a child. I made a conscious decision to go against those. And I think when you have a frame of reference, you can always go back to that. Is that the, is that the key, having a good upbringing, having parents who have instilled values in you? Parents, caretakers, a positive role model. Uh, anyone who can impart words of wisdom uh, to help you develop a uh, a good moral or ethical code. So what happened along the way? You got involved in a, a, quite a bit of crime and drug activities. What happened? Yes, again, it was a conscious decision on my part. Uh, you know, I, I, there's an age of reason where you you know you can pretty much make your own decisions. And I decided that I like to drink and hang out with my friends, and that's what I did, uh, not knowing that. There's a thin line between social drinking and alcoholism. Uh, my dad was a uh, sub- he, my father had a substance abuse issue. Uh, he shot heroin. Uh, I was not aware of that. Uh, there are uh, different reports talk about it being genetic, mm-hmm. and so I wasn't aware of that at all. And so I tried substance abuse. I liked the way it made me feel. And somewhere along the line, I crossed that line from social user to addict. All right. And you are a bona fide success story because you are currently working for the mayor's office on returning citizens. So now you're going to be helping the office here in the District of Columbia um, where people go to, to to receive help. You're going to be giving help. That is correct. I'm currently employed as a workforce analyst, and my responsibility is to build relationships with employers in the hopes that they would take a chance on returning citizens you, and employ them. You just came out of prison a little while ago. This is true. I also hold a master's degree uh, in the field of ah, human services with okay. a concentration in counseling. Okay, so you went out, you have prior college y- education, yes. and, there, and thereby the unusual nature of you doing so well. I mean, you were skyrocketing compared to a lot of people caught up in the criminal justice system. You you came out of prison when? November? 27th. That November is 27th. You came out of the prison system and now you're employed and now you're doing a podcast. I mean, that's pretty unusual. Okay, so you have a collegiate degree. Yes, I do. And I also had a lot of support from family and friends. When okay. I was incarcerated, uh, I owned property, uh, owned a vehicle. And I had a friend who stepped up and was able to maintain that during my period of incarceration. I also had the support of my family. All right, so I'm going to start asking you a series of questions about the criminal justice system because nobody knows the criminal justice system like somebody who's been in it. Uh, I love talking to cops. I love talking to parole and probation agents. I love talking to correctional officers, people who really have lived the system, not just talked about the system, but lived the system. You've lived the system. Um, So I want to ask you a series of questions about your observations within the criminal justice system. Is that fair game? Yes, it is. All right. Um, So what is your impression? of the prison experience. You went to prison, and just what was your impression? And you've been to prison how many times? Or jail? Uh, Probably about 
10 times. Okay. And what's your impression of the American criminal criminal justice system? Uh, I think it leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, Notedly, that a lot of the staff are poorly trained to work with people. They receive little or no training in being culturally competent on how to communicate effectively. And a lot of the issues that I saw take place in the prison could have been easily dealt with uh, with proper training. Mm -hmm. And you can't have people who are working with people and not have people skills. Mm -hmm. It's no different than a customer service, which is essentially what a correction officer does. Mm -hmm. They don't really provide any other services other than open and close your cell and provide, you know, a little bit of services, but yet they don't have any any training in, in working with people. They don't have any training or they don't have the necessary training considering how many people are flowing through that correctional institution. It uh, It is my understanding that they really don't train them in effective communication at all. Okay. So their training is largely geared to securing a facility right. and not in how to interact with inmates and how to uh, you know, phrase questions or phrase answers in a way that would elicit a positive response. And if they had that effective training, what do you think would be different about the correctional system? Well, I think that the people who are incarcerated would probably feel a little bit better about their experience. And I know people are saying, well, maybe you're not supposed to feel better about being incarcerated. However, when you have negative um, interaction with people, uh, it doesn't really allow you the chance to focus in on the things that you need to do to get better as a person. Okay. So it's truly the sense of um, if you want, or what is the the catchphrase? Um, you can catch a lot more, uh, many more bees with honey, honey than you can with, with the vinegar. vinegar. Um, all right. So so is that it in terms of the correctional experience uh, the, that you would have wanted to be treated better by the correctional officers? Uh, that and also the fact that a lot of the men and women, I was fortunate because I had a degree and because I had extensive spirit, uh, experience in the field of social services that I didn't really need to ask them for a lot of services. Mm-hmm. However, you have inmates who come in who are functionally illiterate and are giving a prison handbook to quote-unquote read. Mm-hmm. Um, I helped inmates who couldn't use the automated telephone system. Uh, and so the case managers at D.C. jail uh, really weren't equipped or didn't want to provide a lot of the services uh, that the average inmate needed. And so really what it led to is inmates being frustrated. If... If there were enough programs in the prison system, and I'm talking about mental health programs, educational programs, vocational programs, substance abuse programs, if everybody who walked in through that prison door had access to these programs, and if these programs transferred with that individual into the community, uh, what do you think the correctional experience would be in this country? Uh, I think it would be a, a lot different. I think the first thing is is that a lot of programs are designed by people who have never provided direct services. Mm-hmm. So you have people who know policy but don't know how the service is supposed to be implemented. And I think it starts with that. You have to have people who know what the service is going to look like when it's presented to the consumer or to the prisoner. Okay, so what you're saying is we need programs, but we need them to be well-designed specifically for the people inside that institution. Well, not just for people in the institution, but in, in, in social programs in general, it's people who write policy, who in, who in essence write the program, but they've never provided direct services. Okay, so if we had those programs and they were properly constructed, what would happen? I think that you would see that the recidivism rate would drop. I think that when men and women are released from prison and they have a marketable skill, when they've learned how to read or write, when they've taken on 
um, uh, so some type of training that will translate out into society, then they feel better about themselves. Well, feel better about themselves if they stay away from crime or they stay away from drugs or it's fully functional um, or partially functional. What Give me a sense of context. Because people are saying, look, um, Jeffrey, um, there are elderly people who aren't getting food. There are elderly people who aren't getting shelter. There are veterans uh, fault in the wars and, and they're, they're not given a square deal. And, and so why should we be throwing money in to the prison system for people who have done harm to other human beings. That's how they think. Okay. And so, so they're looking for a justification from Jeffrey or from Trina in terms of what's the true meaning of programs. Well, here's the thing. You're going to throw the money regardless. So you can either throw money into programs or you can throw money into continue to housing them when they come back. Mm-hmm. But the money is going to be spent somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that people have to understand. That money is going to be spent. And if a person returns home with a marketable skill, then and they become gainfully employed, then they are givers rather than takers from our economic system. Mm-hmm. Uh, their children have better opportunity. They become role models to, uh, to others in the community uh, who may not have seen that they could live a particular way of life. So it's not just with that person. It's going to touch on every person who knows that person. So the money is going to be spent, whether it's building new prisons or having effective GED programs, life skill programs, things like that. But the money is going to be spent somewhere. So it's either pay me now or pay me later is, is, is sort of the and, philosophy. And the difference is paying money for prisons doesn't re, doesn't generate any return on your money compared to investing in a program that has the potential to help a person become gainfully employed, to pay taxes, to pay back into the system, uh, to come off a TANF, uh, to be able to send their children to a better school so they can get a better education. And so that's the way I see it. So why don't we do it? Uh, because Trina, feel free to jump in. Why, if, if it's that effective and, and if that's straightforward well, and it's E equals MC squared, 2 plus 2 equals 4, then why aren't we pumping money into the correctional system and ending criminality and re- reducing the burden on taxpayers? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. I think the first one is when you take a look at what happened with criminal justice in the 70s and 80s when people were upset that uh, people in prison had, had cable television, not realizing that that actually served a purpose. And the purpose was when they had something to do, then they were less likely to engage in illicit or, or illegal activities in the prison. Uh, the number of fights dropped considerably. And so a lot of those programs were taken out of the prison system. Because because of public, a public perception, you're, you're absolutely correct. All right. So so okay. We've just said it's rather straightforward. We've said it's rather linear. Programs equal reduced recidivism equal um, less reliance upon taxpayer dollars. So there's still it's got to be a reason for why people are sitting back and going, eh, you know, I just don't feel it. I just don't feel like putting money into the prison system. Because for some people, once you committed a crime, you're always seen as that person. Ah, and. There's, redemption is okay if you come from social, if you come from particular social and economical backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, if you and, and there's been many examples of this. The gentleman with the uh, affluenza case. There was another gentleman who was a CEO who committed a crime against his own daughter, and the judge said, in essence, I'm not going to give you a lot of time because I think that you can contribute to society. Mm-hmm. When you have a large amount of people who um, who don't have the same educational background, who don't have the same uh, uh, socioeconomical background, then they're not even considered to be in the running. And so what happens is if it's a particular population, people really don't care. 
And that's the truth. I want to talk about not caring, but we're going to go to the break. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Jeffrey Porter, a very, very, very interesting young man. We're talking about a story about reentry from prison. Uh, and we also, by our microphones, is Trina Stewart. She's an intergovernmental and community affairs specialist with the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency, my agency, www.csosa.gov. All right, um, Trina, I want you to jump into this conversation. We have a lot of, Jeffrey just said it's a matter of public perception. People are taking a look at people caught up in the criminal justice system and they're saying, no, I don't want to put money into that person. I'd rather put my money elsewhere. Is that true? You're a criminal justice veteran. Absolutely. I agree with that in that many people, it's a different paradigm shift now um, that we are shifting more towards reentry, such as Department of Justice having reentry week uh, this week. Uh, you see um, the first sitting president actually going out to a Bureau of Prisons facility while currently a president. So mm-hmm. the shift is definitely changing. So it's definitely putting a face on what an inmate is, what reentry really looks like. How can we say that we're really helping? Helping that um, inmate coming back home to have a holistic approach when we have yet to do things on the front end versus always providing things, saying that we're doing things at the prison or we're waiting until they come out on probation and parole to try to provide them with services for something that we may only have them for a year or up to five years. And we're trying to combat something that they've battled with for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So, so you're you're mimicking this sense of smart on crime, the, what's coming out, the discussion that's come out within the last five or ten years, uh, that individuals really do need to be given a second chance or a third chance or a 23rd chance, for that mm-hmm. matter, um, that people caught up in the criminal justice system, if they get the services and programs they need, it's going to have all the different positive effects that we talked about in the first half of the program. Absolutely, and meaningful experiences. Uh, one of the things that Mr. Porter talked about, marketable experiences, uh, for instance, or marketable um, marketable careers and uh, programming. For instance, if you know if a person is being released to the District of Columbia, what are some of the areas of um, uh, tourism is here? Uh, you have uh, housekeeping, um, you have janitorial services, um, engineering, buildings are going up every day. Mm-hmm. Are we really um, working um, to provide our clients um, or those inmates that are in the uh, Bureau of Prisons um, with major in terms of being able to say, okay, these are the skills that I can provide when I return home, but not to provide somewhere, okay, let's do farming. Mm-hmm. We don't have farms here in the District of Columbia. So working, you know, in the fields, depending on what Bureau of Prison facility they may be at, may not be meaningful. So what we have is a public relations problem? Potentially. Uh, yes, I would say to, to a large degree, yes. When you take a look at employers who uh, declined to hire convicted felons despite despite the fact that a majority of these crimes are not work-related. And so you're, in essence, cutting off a particular segment of, of the population from being gainfully employed and from being ta- and from taking care of their families solely because they committed an offense that may not even be related to the workplace. And I've had people before these microphones with college degrees uh, who, who came out of the prison system who have not been able to find work in months and months and months. So, so there is a perception problem. Is, is, uh, don't we have that? I mean... The vast majority of individuals in prison systems, whether they be federal or state, don't get programs. 
And you're absolutely correct. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that the perception problem is only there until uh, it until a person is touched by the criminal justice system themselves. So you have a lot of men and women who are against hiring ex-offenders until someone in their family then becomes an ex-offender, and then they see what it looks like from the other side, mm-hmm. and then their perception changes. So the so this is why we do these programs. If we put a Jeffrey Potter before the microphone, people can hear and believe and sort of in a metaphorical way touch, smell, taste Jeffrey Porter. They can get a sense as to who Jeffrey Porter is um, and and what he's all about and that provides a different view of people caught up in the criminal justice system. Um, do you believe that you have the power to persuade people to give other people caught up in the criminal justice system an, an opportunity and even chance, a second chance? Absolutely. I, I believe I do. Uh, another thing is, is that it, it greatly impacts public safety. So uh, a man or woman comes home from prison, they're denied housing, they're denied employment, and then we wonder why, in essence, they knock somebody upside the head and take their purse because they can't support their family. I'm not necessarily condoning the crime, but you, in essence, force people into a particular way of life when you close certain doors to them. Okay, so many individuals who... were under our supervision, once under our supervision before these microphones, especially women offenders, have said, um, you ask so much of me, uh, and there are so many roadblocks put up. Um, My chances to succeed are greatly diminished because of those roadblocks and because of what it is that you're asking me to do. No person can come out of the prison system and kick drugs, deal with my mental health issues, uh, get job training, find a, a job, reunite with my children um, while you know living uh, uh, you know life in virtual poverty. I mean, that's just a lot to ask for from a human being, is it not? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And I think that's where uh, the practitioners, i.e. the community supervision officers here, which are uh, where most people know probation and parole officers, that's where they come in hand at. You have to be aware of the resources that our clients are coming home to. Uh, Having been a uh, community supervision officer here with our agency as well as a supervisory community supervision officer here with our agency, and now having it from a community standpoint, my um, one of the main factors of my job as an intergovernmental and community affairs specialist is seeking those resources, reuniting individuals with the community to say these are the services that are here to uh, assist you what coming back to the community and oftentimes we say here in dc that uh, reintegration many of our clients a large portion of our clients are not have not left they have not gone to the bureau of prisons mm-hmm. they've simply gone to dc superior court been sentenced to a period of supervised probation mm-hmm. and go right back to the same street that they left at 9 a.m this morning prior to their sentencing so it's a matter of connecting people with a pro social lifestyle and so you do see that if individuals are aware of that you didn't get to this point overnight and so we're not expecting you to change overnight but there are certain things that the court or the u.s parole commission those are the two uh, primary releasing authorities that we uh, work with here in the district of columbia this is with you what you've been ordered to do how do we go about how do we go about assisting you with getting that and but along the way not just meeting what the releasing authority has asked of you. What are your goals for yourself? So it's a matter of society. It's a matter of the criminal
criminal justice system. It's a matter for the individual. It's a matter of providing the programs necessary to deal with mental health issues, substance abuse issues, job training issues. That whole package has got to be there for that individual to succeed. Absolutely. And each person is different. I mean, we serve over 10,000 men and women here in the District of Columbia every year. And having that, we recognize that each of those individuals that we service, they have a story and we have to work with them and not say, okay, I work with Miss Jane Doe or Mr. John Doe. And so it's the same thing. We have prescriptive supervision plans and we utilize those. And Jeffrey, I'm going to ask you, what do you think about community supervision? You're out of the prison system. You're under our agency, court services and offender supervision agency. Any critiques you have of us? Uh, my experience has been uh, extremely favorable. However, I understand that it's incumbent upon me to abide by the rules and regulations of my probation. Mm -hmm. And in my conversations with uh, fellow clients of Project Empowerment, which is a transitional employment program that I completed, and we talked about our responsibility. And when I've had conversations with people and they've said my parole officer or my probation officer violated me, I'll point out to them that they, in essence, violated themselves by not abiding by the rules and regulations. It's pretty much cut and dry. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't uh, test positive for drugs or alcohol. You try to remain gainfully employed, and you notify them of any contact with the criminal justice system, and you notify them of your residence. Well, we can send a lot of people back to prison. I remember when I was with the Maryland Department of Public Safety, uh, the public safety secretary one time told me that 70% of our intakes that year were violations of parole and probation. Um, we can easily send anybody back to prison for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, you don't have to be perfect to be sent back to the prison system, but our rate of successful completion has increased over the course of the last couple of years. So what is the magic formula in terms of holding a person responsible for their own actions and yet at the same time finding out what we can do to improve their lives, to better their lives, to stabilize that individual so we don't have to send you back to prison? What's the what's the magic formula? Well, I, I think it starts with your relationships. I'm fortunate to have a great probation officer, and because I work in the field and because of my background, I can get a sense of whether or not a person really cares about me when I'm sitting across the table with them. I've heard many experiences from, um, from other people who had probation officers who made it clear to them when they met them that they didn't particularly care for them. Your relationships is key. And everyone has the opportunity to impact someone's life. And I think that when people who work in the criminal justice system understand that, then maybe it'll take the role a little more serious, that they could be that one person who can just plant a seed of change in that person. And so I think really it's about your relationships. Well, we have five minutes left in the program, and I do want to come back to criminal justice policy, and I do want to come back to the perception uh, perception of people uh, throughout the country. Uh, they're, they're the ones who fund programs. They're the ones who say, yes, I think we should provide more money for drug treatment. Yes, I think we should provide more money for mental health treatment. Yes, I like what Jeffrey and, and Trina were saying today about having programs in prison and have them follow that individual, uh, those programs, follow that individual back out into the community. But, boy, that's going to cost billions of dollars doing this on a national basis. And, and uh, quite frankly, we don't have an awful lot of money. So it does come back to a matter of perception, which is one of the reasons why we asked Jeffrey to come on and one of the reasons why I was intrigued by Trina's recommendation that Jeffrey come on. Jeffrey, what can you say uh, in the final minutes of the program that convinces an individual to give people caught up in the criminal justice system a second or third or tenth chance? 
the first thing I would say was is that it could be it could be you. There have been a lot of people who wound up in the criminal justice system through one simple mistake, and uh, it could be as simple as accepting a ride from someone. And you wind up with five or ten years. And also understand that if you fail to help this person, you don't know the impact that's going to have, not just on that person, but on their immediate family, on their community. And if you are about, you know, one of the things that gets me is is that we hold ourselves out to be a quote-unquote Christian nation. And you hear folks, pardon me for saying this, but from the right saying, you know, God and country, but there's no redemption, You know, as long as, you know, because people are human, you know, we're all fallible. We all make mistakes. And I think at the end of the day, you know, um, that, you know, people should do this because it's the right thing to do. That's the bottom line. By the way, I'm having a conservative while coming to these microphones in a couple of weeks who represents the very people that you just criticized, who you, they believe that they're the leaders. The true I would love leader. to come back and, they and, believe and share that, microphone. No, no they them. believe that they're the true leaders in terms of providing programs and providing that second chance, that they're tired of the criminal justice system being so inefficient, um, and uh, they want to lower the tax-paid burden on citizens by lowering the bill for corrections, and they believe the only way of doing that is providing second chances, third chances, tenth chances, and providing the programs. So I just find it interesting that be careful as to who you criticize. That person may be be your best friend. Uh, uh, Two minutes left in the program. But the average person, once again, sitting there is saying, give me some reassurance that my money, my hard-earned tax-paid money is really going to make a difference. Trina? Pay now or pay later. And you will see here in the District of Columbia, we are taking that shift uh, in the budget hearings for the Department of Corrections. They are uh, transitioning their uh, correction treatment facility from CCA, uh, Corrections Corporation of America, come January of 2017. And in that uh, shift, the uh, Department of Correction is 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 going under a 2.6% reduction of um, their budget in terms mm-hmm. of the funding. However, they are increasing what they do, the programming services that they will provide to D.C. inmates. Uh, so we see it. We, we The research shows us that if you provide individuals with resources and services on the front end, the, recidiv- the recidivism rate will increase by the very nature of helping people, providing them with those resources. Jeffrey, you got 15 seconds. Is Trina correct? Uh, she is absolutely correct. Uh, the money is going to be spent. So you cannot spend it on programs. So you'll spend it to house people over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Investing in people always ensures your return on your money. I'm sorry to see this program, and it's been a lot of fun. Jeffrey Porter, uh, a story about reentry from prison. Uh, Jeffrey Porter is now working for the mayor's office on returning a citizens. Trina Stort, uh, intergovernmental and community affairs specialist with my agency, court services and offender supervision agency. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you both. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is D.C. Public Safety. We appreciate your comments. We even appreciate your criticisms, and we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day.